the Dynamic Deputies. Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Deputies podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. Hi Steve. Hi Russell and a warm welcome to everybody listening. Now, Russell, we're delighted to be welcoming back a previous guest to the podcast today. That's right, Steve. Today, we welcome back Nick Hart to the podcast. Nick is an executive head teacher, a prolific blogger, and the author of a brand new book for leaders in education called Impact, a five-part framework for making a difference in schools. Nick, it's lovely to have you back on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be back. How are you both? Very well. Yeah, good. Good. And it's great to speak to you as always. Uh, Nick, let's start with your book because it feels to me like the ultimate guide for any leader who wants to make a real difference in schools. What was your motivation for writing it? Uh, I think there's two reasons, really. The first one is that being in second headship at the time I started thinking about it, I just was unsatisfied with children's attainment and progress being the this kind of ultimate measure of how good schools are. I mean, I mean it's important, of course, but uh, I, th- I think of it it's it's too far away from leaders it's too distant it, we don't have direct influence over it and so i just wanted to think about okay what what are the things we do that we do influence what what can we have a a closer impact on and then how do they actually get us to those um, end results it, it's it's thinking through a kind of kind of that sequence i suppose and that's why I, I originally did think it was a sequence of uh, a chain a chain reaction but actually one of the most valuable things writing it was figuring out that that's not true mm-hmm. and that that schools are far more complex than that so uh, I mean and people say it all the time but, but I had this initial goal of trying to clarify what I was thinking about something and actually writing it helped the clarification which is wonderful mm-hmm. so it's a really good uh, kind of way of trying to figure out what I know so that was kind of the first one the, the second was I suppose just wanting to make a contribution I, I've read so much from so many different people about different things, models for leadership, ways of teaching, that kind of thing. I suppose I wanted to, to contribute because I remember being a kind of a middle leader and being asked what impact I've had. And, mm. and, and you get asked all the time, don't you? If you haven't been asked that question by someone somewhere, then it's definitely coming. And th- there's that trap where we've all done it. And I still kind of fall into that trap occasionally of just describing what you've done mm. rather than the difference that those actions have made. And so I, I, I suppose the, the second reason for, for writing it is to, to try and help as many people as possible who are in that situation when they're asked, what difference have you made? What impact have you had? And then give them a, a model of a way of thinking about impact so that they can, A, kind of cope in those situations, B, but B, actually make the schools better um, as a result. That's brilliant. And I'll say from the offset that I found this book really helpful, Nick. Your writing is very concise and clear. And I love that the book also plays out the theory through two leaders called Tim and Madiha so that we can see how the framework might look in reality. Now, you chose a five part framework, Nick, and we'd like to explore elements of each section of the book throughout this episode. So let's start with section one on the framework climate. How would you describe what climate is and what does it have to do with impact in schools? On a fundamental level, climate is how it feels for staff to be in our school or to work in our team, to come to, to, come to school every day. It's, it's all about the feeling, the, what's going on inside their heads and with the emotions that they're experiencing. And I mean, there's, there's lots of different bits to it, but the, the most, I think the most interesting ones for, for me are, uh, are related. Uh, I think they're all related, but, but these two particularly uh, of trust and belonging and if our colleagues don't feel psychologically safe, if they if they don't trust the people around them, not necessarily leaders, but the people they work with day to day, if they don't have that 
safety and that trust, there's no way they can be at their best. There's no way they can concentrate on the best ways of explaining uh, multiplying fractions or the best ways of uh, explaining the concept in science. So it's going to be kind of one of the ways in which teachers can become cognitively overloaded if if we're too busy wondering what leaders' intentions are and, and whether or not they're going to be pulled up for a mistake or, or, or that kind of thing. And so climate is, uh, well, a positive climate is freedom from all of that worry uh, and the, uh, the, the trust in, in, in colleagues and the, the, the safety that, that comes with knowing that others have got really good intentions and that everyone's pulling in the same direction. Brilliant. Thanks, Nick. And taking this further, Nick, throughout the climate chapter, you drew on Dan Pink's ideas about motivation. Mm. Now, Pink outlines purpose, autonomy and mastery as the three key areas of motivation. Talk to us about how leaders can manage that tension between needing to be quite directive at times, but also allowing teachers to have some kind of autonomy and flexibility too. That's, that's a really good question. That made me chuckle a little bit because uh, on the Courthouse's most recent Ofsted report, when I first became head and we went from requires improvement to, to good, one of the areas of improvement was to to not be so directive. <laughs> 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 but I mean, that as a point there, that um, the inspector at the time also said, I understand why uh, you needed mm. to to lead in that way when you kind of tell the story of where the school had come from and that so it was quite amusing <laughs> that you mentioned that you mentioned that but uh I th- I, again it's a it's a really hard one to get right because everyone has their own kind of uh autonomy is on a scale uh so it's not it's not absolute you don't even have autonomy or you don't have autonomy mm. there's a there's a scale of uh, no autonomy at all to complete autonomy and i think one of the traps that leaders fall into you see it all the time is that they, they want consistency of, of approach. They want to everyone doing the same thing. They, but that's mad when you think about it because a reception class and a year six class can't be run on the same pedagogy or the same strategies of learning behavior or the same classroom environment. It just it, it can't be uniform in that way. And, and I think that's, that, that's a, a real trap to avoid with, with, with autonomy. Um, but how do you? I suppose how well, how do you go about doing it? I mean, it also, it's not just individual preferences that are, that are important. It's the stage of, of development the school is in. If a school is uh, in what David Carter describes as a rescue phase, <laughs> you have to be you have to be directive. You have to say no. We need to do this because some things might not exist. There might not be safeguarding procedures that are good enough to keep children safe. There might not be behaviour expectations and strategies that are good enough to make sure that there's a calm and purposeful environment so there's i think two two really important points there the stage of school development is really important in that and also individuals have their own preferences now uh, even now we still struggle with some of this because some people like having lots of autonomy and some people Mm. actually don't like it Mm. they want to be told Mm. what what to do and how to do it and i suppose the, the the balance the way of striking a balance is being clear about what those principles are not not the actions you want people to do not the behaviors you want them to engage in but the the problems that you want them to solve or the or the broad areas so you might not so it might be for example uh, well a, a mistake would be you have to use numicon in math lesson that's overly prescriptive and sometimes it doesn't work sometimes it's not needed some children might not need it but uh, if if you kind of reframe that as children sometimes benefit from using concrete manipulatives and and that's how you talk about it with staff then there's far more choice available for when how why 
for, for the different ages that they teach for different children that they teach and their different prior knowledge. It's, I suppose it's, it comes down to how we frame it as leaders and that clear purpose, I, I think I'll probably say this a lot, but that, that clear purpose of what, what we choose to do and why mm. instead of dictating what people should do i think is yeah. is the way around that autonomy thing yeah because you get a lot of kind of shallow compliance when it's all about yeah. fear culture isn't it and yeah and I've, I've been in schools like that where people do those things in a very shallow way but they're not having any impact which is yeah. ultimately what yeah. this book is about is about understanding the why behind these decisions and yeah no that sounds really common sense to me okay so moving on from climate which you've described really nicely the second part of the framework is systems and processes now for me this has been the most significant area of learning in my leadership it's the area where I think I've made the most impact in my job an effective system can work wonders in a school now the bit of the chapter that really leapt out at me though was that you talked a bit about quality assurance of those systems. So leaders need to know whether those systems and processes are being lived out in the classrooms. And you say this, so I'm quoting you, uh, a theme throughout this book is the argument for inquiring into the reality of school life in each impact domain, avoiding the temptation to make judgments, building our knowledge so that we can make decisions that are more informed. And I think you say something along those lines two or three times in the book. And I'd just love to hear a bit more about that quality assurance because it's something I've spent a lot of my summer thinking about. <laughs> me too, me too. I've written a little bit of trying to clarify thoughts on in, on various Twitter threads. But first of all, there's already plenty of evaluation in, in schools. We have offset inspections. We have kind of scrutiny over results. There's plenty of people around ready to say how good the schools are and us doing that in our own schools it's just not i don't think we can do it i mean rob co talks about and he's talked about for years the difficulty in judging the quality of a lesson and the reality is that you need multiple observations with multiple observers over a long period of time with really clear criteria in order to get anywhere near a reliable judgment of say a teacher's effectiveness and so if, if we walk around school thinking that we can make judgments of how good things are we're deluding ourselves it's first of all there's the reliability issue and then there's also the the sample that we see there's no way that what we see as leaders walking around the school is the actual lived reality of, of the school because just by being there we change things if you're a head or a deputy head or a, an assistant head or something and you walk into a classroom people behave differently mm-hmm. and therefore if we make any if we try and make judgments on how good something is based on what we see there's no way that what we see is the reality of school. So I think it's a bit, I think it's misplaced, but that the, the focus of evaluation is, is, I think is misplaced. And then that's without even talking about the, the negative climate effects that can come from judgment and evaluation. The, the, the impact on trust and the impact on psychological safety can, cannot be worth, it surely isn't worth it for something that isn't reliable. So I, I'm advocating in the book more of a, an approach to building knowledge of the school instead of making judgments to try and find out as much as possible about the reality of it. Um, I mean, there's a couple of parts to that. The first is that I thought a lot of it comes from, from Matt Evans's blogging, and he, he talks about mapping as a, as a metaphor for quality assurance. Instead of evaluating, we're trying to map. And he talks about uh, this, one, this one quote that's brilliant where he talks about maps have different purposes. So you might have a road map that, 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 that details the transport links. So you might have a weather map that shows what weather is like in different areas. You might have a topographical map that shows the physical geography of, of a place. And, and different maps have different purposes. They all give 
a more complete picture of, of an area. And if you're looking for a, a true, accurate picture of school life, you need to look at school life with different lenses. And that's kind of what this book is, is you have to try and look at a problem from multiple perspectives rather than one person walking in and making a judgment on how good a lesson is or how good children's work in books are. If we can figure out what colleagues know and how they behave and what systems are going on and how it feels and then what, uh, for, for staff to work there and then the outcomes that children get you've got five different ways of approaching a, a, a problem mm. uh, and if and if we can do that we're, we're far more likely to to get to the bottom of what actually is happening and therefore make better decisions about trying to improve um, our schools or departments or year groups or subjects great love that nick this actually leads quite nicely into section three where we're looking at colleagues knowledge because you outline the different types of knowledge that this includes such as subject knowledge pedagogical knowledge and knowledge of the school's strategic direction what for you are the most effective ways of both establishing colleagues knowledge and then acting on the gaps that you find first of all it's important to, to acknowledge and, and i've made this mistake loads of times where teachers behaviors are dependent on what they know and I've, for years, I've gone down the route of thinking, right, we need to do some CPD on, uh, say, I don't know, explanations. And you focus on the what, what you want them to do, rather than the knowledge that's underpinning it. You can't give a really clear explanation without knowing the subject content really, really well and knowing the misconceptions really well. And so that's a, an, an important kind of learning point is that getting teachers to do anything differently isn't necessarily focused on the behavior you want them to do it's it's the understanding that, 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 that that's behind it and often that is subject and pedagogical knowledge and we've also i mean i've done this plenty of times as well where we get okay subject knowledge is really important so let's do some inset training on grammar or additive reasoning or the science and history curriculum or, or wherever it is and but but that's too big you've got a you've got a group of teachers if you if you're lucky you've got i don't know 15 16 teachers all in a room ranging from ECTs to the most hardened, knowledgeable teachers that you can, you can imagine and, and trying to kind of develop their subject knowledge in, in a very broad area in a small period of time. And then they'll go away and they won't actually do anything with that because if you, they might not teach relative clauses. They might not teach kind of the Romans or whatever it is. And, and so that was, a, that was a bit of a mistake as well. And I've come to the conclusion, I think, the best way of developing teachers' knowledge is to just make the most of what they're actually doing in the next couple of days at any point. And that's why I think team meetings, if you're lucky enough to have multiple teachers in a year group, when they get together and they talk about what they're teaching and how they're going to explain it and what misconceptions might come up and what strategies the school advocates and, and all those kind of things. If you've got conversations like that happening, that's far better than a group of teachers in an inset talking about a very broad subject area because they can act on it immediately. It's coming up in their classrooms in, in the next week or so. And, and it's, re it's relevant to what they're doing. Of course, that, that relies on having amazing year leaders, which we're really lucky to have, who, who can keep those conversations going. They, can, they, they, they know that knowledge is important. They can, they can bring up the subject knowledge that's needed. They can talk about the misconceptions that come up. They can lead the team to think in that way, rather than just saying, we're doing this activity in maths, we're doing this activity in geography, we're doing this activity in music. The conversations are better if the year leaders are focused on leading those conversations in the team. That's so interesting to me because I've done that a million times, done some yeah. really <laughs> what I think is good training, like around yeah. an area of maths or something. You know, I was talking to Steve earlier in the summer on, on another podcast we did about um, how I'd done some math mastery stuff about four years ago and it's come yeah. right round and it really needs to be looked at again. Yeah. But 
I've been kind of contemplating over the summer. How's it going to look different to last time? Because before it was big and generic. And actually, I think what you've said there would be a really nice thing for me to take away is, okay, we looked at this element of, you know, NCTM's big five ideas. Let's look tonight at what that's going to look like in your next units coming up. I think that's so much more useful. I don't know where, you know, what thinker or whoever came up with it, but I know when I did my middle leadership training, there being something around the biggest motivator for kind of change implementation for a teacher is, is them seeing an impact on the children. Mm. That's such a profound thing for, for a teacher trying something and seeing it yeah. work. So that makes complete sense mm. with what, with what you're saying there. Now, moving on to section four of your five part framework, you talk about colleagues behaviors, which you've just explained there kind of follow on from their knowledge, Nick. And mm. um, there are a lot of great ideas explored in this chapter, but I thought I would just pick out a bit where you spoke about uh, teachers relationships with pupils and coming back to that idea you spoke about at the start of the podcast of belonging that it sounds like something you've really thought quite deeply Mm. about in the last couple of years why is belonging and those uh, powerful relationships so important and following on from there what what kind of advice would you give to teachers to foster that sense of belonging in a classroom I think it's important for the same reasons that it's important for staff if children feel safe Uh, and secure and that they are part of their class or part of their friendship group or part of their year group or part of their school or part of the community if they have that that sense of of belonging then they're far more likely to be happy and obviously that's a great outcome in itself children to be happy is is a wonderful outcome to strive for regardless but but it also makes it I think far more likely that they're going to learn what we want them to learn and become more rounded kind of generally and I think for a couple of years now it's been a central part of our behavior strategy it's not just rules and uh, rules that rules and rewards and sanctions but it's, it's what teachers can do to make sure that children feel like they do belong and uh, that there's one teacher she sadly retired in the summer who was unbelievable at doing this and she she did it naturally no one had to kind of explain you could do this to make a child that feels like they belong or you could try that you could try the other we've kind of tried to codify those things because it doesn't come naturally to all of us as it did to to this teacher but you, you could watch her kind of narrating the value of a child to the class and it wasn't really praise it wasn't well done your work was great it was so much more than that it was you're really important to this class because of how you've how you've persevered and how you've done this work and and then she pulled, she used to pull other people in and she used to do, like tell these stories three or four or five times a day about different children. And they loved it, absolutely loved it. And that, I mean, that's not a, a, an end in itself. Um, but the way that they beamed at the end of that, the way that they felt like that was their class and she was their teacher and they wanted to work to kind of get that attention was wonderful. And so I think narrating children's value to everyone else I think it's really powerful. I mean, I've seen it, seen it with this, this one teacher and, uh, and I kept sending other teachers to go and other adults to go and just watch her do it. It's amazing. I think that is just the most beautiful thing. And, you know, I guess what strikes me, you said we've tried to codify it and I've read blogs by you when you've talked about things like belonging cues yeah. and, and I think they're brilliant blogs. But a bit of me is always like when I read those kinds of things, like doesn't that just stem like when you describe that teacher I can almost picture her and her eyes lighting up and just Mm. that real heart whereas I think the codifying is really helpful but is there a danger do you think of that them seeming disingenuous or do you have you found that helpful for those teachers who just doesn't come out as naturally I mean uh, on a personal level I I don't think I was anywhere near as good as this teacher was at that kind of thing Mm. and if someone would have told me 
if you do this or if you do that, then that might help. And I'd have jumped, I'd have jumped on that. I think that's, that's, that's fundamental to leadership development or, or, or teach development generally. I think it's far easier to get better at something if you know what those things are. Whereas if I got given some feedback on you, you, you need to be warmer or you need, <laughs> you need to, I don't know, you need to be more, you need to be nicer or something like that. That's really vague. Yeah. Then it's really mm. hard to act on. Mm. It's the same with leadership stuff. And, and, and this is part of the researcher talk at the weekend is that often like leadership adverts, they ask for things like a dynamic leader or a inspirational leader. I'm not one of those. I don't think I'm any of those things. And you look at that. And, and I know that loads of people would look at those things and think, I'm not that. I'm not going to apply for the job. And, and how can you be more dynamic or more inspirational? It doesn't make any, that, it's not clear mm. about what you can do to actually get better at that. And so although it, I, I get your point that, it, it, that so for some people it might be a bit forced to start with because they're not naturally, they naturally do that. I don't think I naturally do those things that the teacher did. But could I learn them? Probably. Yeah. Would it be awkward and clunky at first? Definitely. <laughs> but I probably could. But, but like anything, you'd get better at doing it and you'd be invested in it over time. That's a fair response. I was definitely playing devil's advocate with <laughs> yeah. that. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you made me think, you know, you've made me think back to colleagues I've worked with over the years where, you know, you've seen something that they do and you, you do sort of replicate it at first or play with it. Mm. And then it, and then it, it rolls into a natural experience as you see the benefits of it. And, and you're quite right. You know, some teachers might be truly wonderful, lovely people, but just not think to narrate, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, a child's yeah. achievements in the way that that teacher did so naturally. And after doing it, yeah, it might just become a thing. It's the same with behavior. So we've done this before with teachers where we, we know they're really good with managing behavior. We just know, you, you know, they are the children kind of respond really well and uh, really calm a personal environment. And so you kind of take, take someone along and say, you've got to come see this teacher managing behavior. They're brilliant. And they don't actually do anything that you, you don't, there's nothing you can see them doing mm. that, that is helpful. So it, it, it might be that they gave, they, they gave a look and it stopped, but then, and then another teacher going away might just give a look <laughs> and it doesn't work. Mm. So it's so much more complex than certainly than I uh, kind mm. of developed in my earlier career, trying to understand how, how you get better at, things and that and and i think i do think codifying kind of kind of some behaviors is is useful but but there is that clunky phase to get through if it's not natural yeah yeah absolutely and i think it's uh, about time we then move on to the last part of the framework which is the outcomes for children uh nick this is a really sensible chapter and it looks at assessment in a really helpful way and i love the bit where you warn of the dangers of comparing one set of statutory data with the next cohorts can you say a bit more about the points you make here I remember a good few years ago, um, I don't think I was a leader, I think I was a teacher at the time, and, and the year six leader was telling me the conversation they'd had with the head about, like last year, results were, I don't know, 75% uh, <laughs> level four plus. So this year, we have to get at least 78. Yeah, yeah. Which, you can see why that you'd want results to keep getting better, but they're not comparable in any way. It's different children doing different tests, sometimes a completely different curriculum. Mm -hmm. And oh, it's, 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 it might be interesting, but it can't, you can't control it to that extent. You can't, I mean, hardly anything is controllable in school, but this is massively uncontrollable. And so I think when, when people ask for those kind of things, it just shows a, a, a lack of appreciation for all sorts to do with assessment reliability, mm -hmm. to do with, cohorts of children prior knowledge their experience in schools that kind of thing i had, a, had one experience with a kind of a 
a MAP executive leader who who came in to talk to us about MOXAT scores. And uh, he said something along the lines of, okay, that, that one child got 100 in reading in December. That same child got 99 in March in reading. So they're getting worse. <laughs> that child's getting worse. I was like, no, two different reading tests, mm-hmm. completely different questions. A difference of one, step, one scaled score is probably a maximum of one mark. Yeah. And that could be anything. And so things like that just oversimplify too much what's actually happening. And I mean, of course, attainment is only a small window into what children are actually achieving and what they're actually learning. And it's just frustrating when things are reduced to, to, to numbers like that. Yeah, simplifying too much. I mean, Russell, you can probably think of two classes that you taught at our school. Yeah. And if you tried to compare the cohorts... Is that non-existent? Yeah. Apart from their age, about as far as it goes. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking back to them. Yeah, I had them for a couple of years in a row, and then Steve had them. They were they were just an extraordinary cohort in terms of their makeup and and the amount of additional need. And and we've got one just like it now. You know, where we've got about seven or eight statements in a in a two form entry school in one year group mm. going into year six and you know i am very aspirational for children with additional needs we we do so much in our school but there there's there's sometimes there's there's the generic category of sen and then there's the acuteness of 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 the um challenge that child has and and we have a mm. cohort with such acute challenges around their learning and those children have made remarkable progress over time but that attainment is going to be an enormous challenge for us next year. I mean, there's you just can't compare them with the current, uh, well, the year sixes that have just gone on that have been a, a pretty steady bunch. So uh, I think it's a really wise point. And even with progress data, you say in the book that that's yeah. still got to be careful because that's still measuring attainment from one place to another. Um, yeah, I think I think really sensible advice. And I kind of wanted to follow up on, on that on the same chapter with a quote that, you know, really moved me that kind of summarized for me, Nick, that you're this very kind of thoughtful, inquisitive person. But it was it was a nice reminder of what a big heart you've got as well, if I'm honest. You say uh, you say, I'm not saying you're a machine, Nick. But you say in the book. You say this, you say it's the stories that children write, the responses that they give to the books that they read, the mathematical problems that they can solve, the pieces of artwork that they create, the models that they make, the games that they learn to play, the music that they perform, and much more that are the real outcomes. So I completely agree with this point. And as leaders, how might we capture and celebrate these very real outcomes that are beyond kind of standardized assessments? Mostly they're just there. And, and part of it is how we pay attention. If we if we pay attention to test scores if we just want to know what the teacher assessments are saying or what the standardized test scores are saying then that that shows everyone else what we think is important then people will stop showing us the artwork and they'll stop calling us along to listen to the retelling of a story and that kind of thing and so part of it is is definitely how you what you, what you choose to pay attention to i think that those things will always happen in school children will always produce wonderful bits of work but but one way of making sure that we kind of see them is is to plan for them in a better way so a well-designed curriculum will have these, these endpoints at different uh, different stages that if we're really careful in planning what those endpoints are and the steps along the way to get there then loads of children are going to produce these amazing pieces of work the, the, these uh, stories or the, uh, the pieces of art or the musical compositions or the dances that they, they happen every day but sometimes you, 
is that you get a bit of kind of a blindness. You just you just don't see them. It's so easy mm. to miss them if you're if you're not going out looking for them or if you're not deliberately thinking about what they are and what you want them to be and, and sharing them more widely. So there's a huge point there about planning for really good ones uh, and and changing how we pay attention around the school uh, to to include those things. I mean, it's always fun to kind of every every term or so to to whip around the classrooms and find the best bits of work and put them in frames and put them on the wall. It, it means so it's a small gesture. But it means so much to lots of children and, and the teachers that have helped them to produce them. I think that as leaders, we're still shocked, aren't we, Steve, sometimes of how much it means to the kids and the teachers when you're just wandering casually and you pay attention to something or they put something in front of you. Did you find that, Steve, when you, you know, in the deputy role that you, you, you just have kids dying to show you what they're up to? 100%. And you know what? Normally... You can walk into a classroom, you know the extroverts that will naturally go, oh, look at this, look at this, and really celebrate. It's sometimes amazing to just wander into a classroom and look at someone who maybe is in that silent majority. or mm. And if you just catch something, or it can be a, an action they do within a classroom, it can be a piece of work, whether it's written or it's crafted. But if you do acknowledge and praise that, it means so much to mm. a child. And that is what they go out that door and say to yeah. their parents straight away, whoa! Mr. East just coming and said, my work was amazing. You think, how <laughs> joyful is that? That's what it's all about. Yeah. That that will stick with that child. It's Absolutely. amazing. Um, so, Nick, as Russell said earlier, this is a cracking book. And in our view, it really is a central reading for any leader. But when someone reads a book like this, it's tempting to think that the author must get it right all the time. We'd love to hear you reflect on the importance of mistakes and setbacks in your own career, because surely this knowledge you've built up hasn't all been because of a plane sailing ride right <laughs> absolutely no there's no such thing if you find someone who's had a plane sailing ride i'd like to meet yeah. them and find out what they're doing <laughs> exactly. uh, there's been times where i've pushed things to happen too fast where i've not been pushing enough and things have gone too slow i've sometimes been too prescriptive i've sometimes been too trusting i've sometimes been too kind of cynical and uh, and, and other times too kind of too much of an advocate for things and mm. uh, I, I think you each of those experiences help you to develop kind of what you want the school to look like or you want the subject or a team to look like. I mean, I've been told I'm a terrible teacher. I've been told I'm a terrible leader. I've left roles because I wasn't enjoying it and wasn't doing what I wanted to, to do uh, or didn't fit with, with those above. And the, the, the great thing is finding a place where you can have the time and the and the autonomy and the and the and the trust in you to do the things that you think are important and you find that relationship with with others you're working with because that is when things really start to click when work is enjoyable when you know you're making a difference and 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 when mistakes do happen and they still will you can have people that will tell you you're being an idiot you can they will tell you that you're making a mistake they will ask you why are we doing this that doesn't make any sense and and i get that all the time that the best thing about the day is when someone says that's a stupid idea. Or why are we doing this? What, what, is that just because it always happened? What, why, why would it, what, th those are the things that leaders have to be able to respond to. Because if you can't explain your educational reasons for the things you're doing, if you can't take from a lunchtime controller or a TA that your decision about that is stupid, the system you've designed is rubbish and that it needs mm -hmm. to be different, then that, that's when things start to go wrong. You need to have that, that feedback from, from all sorts of people to try and keep refining. 
that's really refreshing to hear and i think <laughs> we've, we've, we've bowed over the summer that every podcast will have an element of you know us all the guests just <laughs> humbly explaining where life doesn't always go right for them i think this struck me after my highs and lows episode that i did a solo which was basically like a miserable uh, monologue to mike I had so many lovely responses to that because I think it it was a sigh of relief from the profession of like, yeah, it's bloody hard sometimes and it doesn't all go, you know, as we said there, plain sailing. So, yeah, that's really refreshing. Thanks, Nick. I think um, like books, books and and Twitter and everything else is uh, is is like any other social media. It's not real. Mm. Yeah. Like what people put out, like the, the book isn't a description of my schools. No, there's no schools that are like that. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's a, a kind of a combination of what some of the things we do, some of the things I want us to do, some of the things that, that might happen, some things that might not happen. It's the same with, we, we put the, what we put out is the, the best of us isn't yeah, it? it's, exactly. it's not yeah it's not the reality and and that's really important for everyone to remember just like any form of social media brilliant love it and nick before we go i said to you just before i hit record i'm on amazon i'm leaving this lovely review for your your new book impact and there pops up nick hart i'm like there's another nick hart right an education <laughs> book <laughs> creating a strong culture and positive climate in schools and it's out in next tuesday next tuesday podcast might be out by then who knows and i'm like what's he up to writing multiple books at the same time i don't know if you want to say a little bit about the book because now we get yeah two exciting books from nick hart uh you know in one go yeah so the culture book is uh, uh so much fun to write it was it's, it's more specific than uh, the impact book it's it's particularly about culture and climate the different things that leaders might need to know and do in order to create a, a strong culture and a positive climate and again writing it is so useful for developing what I know and then applying that to, to, to school life. So uh, yeah, two books. That was a busy summer last year, uh, <laughs> but really pleased with both of them. And uh, I'm really glad that I can contribute to the educational book scene. Brilliant. Well, maybe we'll just have to have you on again yeah. <laughs> a couple of months time we'll let you have a little yeah. break and then we'll talk Wonderful. more about climate and culture because i love the love the sound of that <laughs> nick thanks for a great chat and keep doing the brilliant work you do thank you thanks guys the dynamic deputy